This fine podcast is sponsored by FutureNet. FutureNet is a networking-focused, invitation-only event being held during VMworld this August 2017. You'll hear from industry leaders and expert practitioners about new and emerging technologies that will transform the network. Request your invitation at vmware.com slash futurenet. Today on Datanauts, we look under the hood of distributed storage systems to explore erasure coding. Is erasure coding just a fancy name for RAID? What happens if we lose a storage node and have to recreate the missing pieces? Well, holy east-west traffic, Batman. It's erasure coding. Today on the Datanauts podcast. At PacketPushers.net, you can find this in all of our Datanauts shows about infrastructure engineering, or just search for Datanauts spelled like astronauts in your favorite podcatcher. You can follow us at Datanauts underscore show. I am Ethan Banks at EC Banks, and with me is the ginger-bearded Chris Wall at Chris Wall, who stores his beer resiliently using an XOR parity bit scheme for nine nines of beer availability. Joining us today is Jay Metz. Jay, welcome to Datanauts, and if you would, please introduce yourself to the audience. Hey guys, yeah, my name is Jay Metz. I am a research and development engineer for advanced storage at Cisco Systems. Okay, and it says here in the notes that you are a competitive swing dancer? For reals? For reals. Okay. <laughs> I used to do a lot of competitions in Europe, actually, when I lived over in England. Wow, that is, I, I've seen that. That is a lot of energy to be expended. That is not, uh, that's not waltzing about the floor. That's uh... No, it's swing dancing around the floor. It, it's, it's literally swing dancing, Ethan. It's 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 right in the name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks for that. Okay, well, Jay, let's jump into things here. We want to talk about erasure coding, but I think it's important for us to start the conversation by level setting with a discussion about distributed storage because that's really what we need to understand before we can get into erasure coding specifically. So, Jay, what do we mean when we say distributed storage? Well, basically, distributed storage is pretty much what it sounds like, unlike some of the other terms we would find in storage. But effectively what it means is you want to be able to spread out your data across some geographic distance. And by some geographic distance, it could mean inside of a a device, it could be inside of an array, it could be inside of a data center, it could be inside of the globe. But effectively it means that you have multiple different locations where the storage is located and you have access to that storage in some sort of fashion. But the entirety of the storage is counted as one unit. So your storage is distributed and the unit is a distributed storage. Hopefully that's clearer than mud. Yeah, yeah. No, I I got it. I mean, I think where I've seen distributed storage most typically is that data center context where within a data center, you're using multiple hosts and uh, disks within those hosts. And you've got a file broken up into chunks that would be scattered across the disks in those multiple hosts. Is that fair? It's fair, but that is also, you know, an implementation detail, right? So whether you want to have your storage co-located with the hosts or not can be an implementation factor, right? As long as the storage is not centralized, that's, that's really what we're comparing it to is a centralized storage environment where all the storage is in one place and all the hosts go to that one place to get their storage. So you can implement this in different ways, but as long as it's not a centralized storage environment, it can be considered distributed. Now, it's a broad definition, I admit it, but it's for the conversation we're having today, I think we're not really splitting hairs. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. 
So some examples that people might recognize are distributed storage systems. Uh, I've written some things down here. Hadoop comes up frequently. VMware's vSAN would be one. I saw a presentation by a company called DriveScale that fits in that world. Rubrik, who, of course, many people know Mr. Wall works for, fits into that realm as well. Any other ones you wanted to add, Jay? Oh, sure. We've got no shortage of different approaches for, uh, for different systems, different kind of players. I mean, you've got the Facebook has its own distributed system. You have companies like Cleversafe and Scality and Keringo and IBM's got their own thing. EMC's got their own thing. OpenStack has its own thing with Swift. You know, these are all forms of, of distributed storage systems. So people have probably heard about these systems without actually knowing what they really were. But that's, that's all over the place. And there's a number of different philosophies for how to, to do this in an effective fashion. So I would imagine a lot of folks listening may be a little bit less familiar with the distributed storage architecture, but perhaps more familiar with RAID, you know, the redundant array of inexpensive disks was the, the acronym that I learned it to be. So what's mm-hmm. kind of the differences between, let's say differences and similarities between distributed storage and RAID? Oh, okay. So, well, the Venn diagrams kind of overlap, but they're not equivalent. <laughs> okay. All right. And, and I think it's a fair question. So if you'll bear with me while I try to paint a picture with words, hopefully it won't take me a thousand words to paint this picture. The storage that is distributed has to do with the means by which we actually place data in certain locations. RAID has to do with the way that we make this available. In other words, how resilient, how reliable, how much failure can we tolerate? So they go hand in hand, but they're not exactly the same thing. So the way that RAID works is that you have different levels of protection. And those different levels of protection are organized by how the data is located on specific types of disk. RAID means redundant array of inexpensive disks. That's one way of looking at it. Redundant array of inexpensive or independent disks. But effectively, what it basically does is it says, I have data, and I'm going to spread that data over a couple of locations according to a specific scheme of protection. And that's what the RAID does. And RAID is not to be confused with more of the more global systems because RAID is always handled inside of a device, right? Inside of a specific storage device like a, like a storage array or an appliance. That's the big thing in my head when we're talking about RAID. We're talking about disks with one common host, not disks spread out across a bunch of hosts. Right. But the thing is to keep in mind is we're going to be talking about erasure coding later on. But RAID is a specialized form of erasure coding. That's why I'm trying to be very specific about the fact that we're looking at the method by which we protect the data. If we're doing it inside of a storage array, we use RAID as a method of protecting the data. If we're doing it outside of a device, we're going to be using some other way of protecting the data other than RAID, but it's all part of that protecting the data umbrella. Got it. Okay, so then I think we got a a good correlation between distributed storage and RAID. So then why do distributed storage? What would be the things, the business drivers perhaps that would send me in that direction? I think one of the things that we have to keep in mind is that we always have a trade-off. There's nothing comes for free. When we start to look at how storage works inside of a data center, or even as it relates to a particular host, we always have a trade-off. We have a trade-off between how fast it is and how much of it we've got. Let's just take a simple example of our laptop. Our laptop has a single drive. It's embedded inside the system. Our host has direct access to it. It's very fast. It has to be very fast, right? It has to do everything that your laptop needs. It doesn't scale very well. 
which means that if you want to have more storage than what your laptop drive has, you need to be able to access that storage in some way. Now, the way that we do that with our laptop is we usually connect a USB drive or you know an Ethernet cable that connects to a drive. We directly attach to some sort of storage in order to get that level of scale. But even that is limited, right? If you have a USB drive, you take up a USB port and you only have a number of USB ports on your laptop. In the data center, we have this at a much bigger, if you'll pardon the expression, scale, right? I've got many hosts, and each of them have their own internal storage device, let's say for the sake of argument, but they also need to have more storage over time, so we have to connect them, and we can't just simply pop in a USB stick after USB stick after USB stick, so scale becomes something of the issue. I mean, we could, but that sounds like bad juju, to just have a porcupine (laughs) of USB sticks on your server. Hey, you know, there are a lot of people who want jobs. <laughs> if you want that job of going around and just stuffing in USB sticks, by all means, more power to you. I'm not one of those people. But the, but the issue really is that if you want to scale into massive amounts of data, you have to have some better way of doing it. But remember, the important thing to keep in mind is that storage is not about storing data. It's about retrieving data. It doesn't do you any good if you store data and you can't get it back. So storage's real job is to give you back the bit that you asked it to hold on to. To that end, we need to create systems that allow you to do this. So if something goes down, if a node fails or a host fails, you don't want the storage to go away with it, right? You can rebuild a host. Rebuilding the storage from nothing is still going to be nothing, right? So you want to make things redundant. You want to make things resilient. You want to make sure that your storage is able to survive an outage or a problem, which actually happens a lot more than people think. So when we start to distribute storage, the reason why we do that is we want to create a relationship between the amount of storage that we need to write, the distance over which it needs to be written, and the level of protection that we wish to have. You think that the more storage you have, the more protection you have, and that can be true, but you also have this other trade-off, which is how fast are you going to get it back? It's a two-way street. You have to write it and you have to read it. You can't have one without the other. So where do we find distributed storage typically? I mean, what are the normal applications or the use cases where distributed storage seems to show up? Well, it's pretty broad. You've got a lot of distributed storage applications that people use every day and they don't even know it. So, for example, you've got your cloud storage systems like Dropbox and Box and, and of course, your Facebooks and Instagrams and those kinds of things are effectively distributed storage systems. Archival systems, you know, backup and recovery. If you're looking to do off-site disaster recovery, distributed storage can exist in multiple different ways. You can have peer-to-peer storage systems that are basically looking for eventually consistent approaches to moving data around and keeping it protected. And this is usually true on a kind of a global system. Things like BitTorrent is a a good example of a peer-to-peer storage system. And so all of these are qualified as distributed storage. So Jay, is there an amount of data where distributed storage does make sense or doesn't make sense? Like what's the sweet spot where, okay, my USB sticks aren't going to cut it anymore. I need to actually build out or adopt a system that is distributed in nature. Is it a certain size, like amount of data or something like that? Or is it kind of totally arbitrary? No, it's, it's, well, it's neither. It has to do with the trade-offs. In storage, what we look to do is we want to try to match the storage environment we have with the application requirements. So, for instance, every application has its own fingerprint of characteristics, right? It's got its own I.O. size. It's got its own retrieval size. It's got its own update mechanisms and so on. So you don't want to treat a financial 
storage system the same way that you would treat Facebook's images data store, right? Because the images don't change, but your checking account could change on a rapid basis, especially come bill time. So you don't want to use the same storage environment for this. And as a result, you may have different levels of needs. So you have to measure the trade-offs that you're going to have versus what you're going to get out of that particular system. You want to do the balance between you know, your security and your storage overhead or uh, your availability and your latency and those kinds of things. So when we start to take a look at the applications that are applicable, eventually consistent systems like object stores usually wind up being very good candidates for these kinds of systems. Whereas really low latency, high performance computing, not so much. You may want different methods of protection in that environment. So you got to measure the sweet spot against what you're actually looking to do. I mean, you know, finding the great sweet spot on a baseball bat isn't helpful if you're playing cricket. So, I mean, it sounds like performance is a huge driver. And then maybe secondarily or, or slightly coupled with that is the resiliency that you get from the storage system. Well, it can be. So, for example, a general purpose storage array, you may have your most important property being performance. And cost is probably your least important. Or if you're looking for secure storage, then the property that's most important is security. And the least important would be your storage overhead. In big data, for example, your biggest important property is volume, the large volumes of data, the amount of capacity you have. And the least important would be write latency. So it doesn't matter how long it takes to write as long as it's there and you know you can get it when you need to. What if we up-level beyond RAID where we're looking at the device or the disk and more to RAIN, where we're looking at the node or the, the collection of nodes. How does that change the architecture and the perspective that an enterprise architect would be considering when it comes to distributed storage? Well, effectively, the RAIN is, the, as you point out, the redundant array of independent nodes. So effectively, we're taking a more fractalized approach. We're basically kind of expanding our horizons, right? So a RAIN would be something that's not inside the device but inside of a rack or uh, inside of a row of racks. And so the way we think about this is the same in the fact that we have certain number of, of devices and the distribution of this is pretty much the same as we would do inside of a device in concept. But now we have the added element of the network to take into consideration that we, we don't have to worry about too much inside of a device. So now we're talking about what happens when you have the distribution of these different pieces of information and we need to figure out how to reconstruct them. And that's where things like erasure coding really starts to come into its own. Because once you start to move these across devices as well as across disks, then the question really winds up changing because time is more of a problem. So, Jay, we've talked about moving chunks of a file across disks and across nodes. But there's got to be some central controller that is kind of tracking where all the bits got placed so that you can pull it all back together when you're requesting a file? Yes, there can be a central controller, but it's not required. This kind of yes, but it depends answer is almost cliche inside of our business. But (laughs) in this case, it really is. Remember when I said earlier that a lot of these questions have to do with implementation details. When we start to marry the solution we're looking for against the the sweet spot of the application type, whether we use a controller or not can make a very big difference. So as you start to move outside of the device and inside of the data center or across data centers, you want to have some sort of element where you need to know where all the data is. And so 
inside of the data center in a RAIN kind of environment where you're talking about the independent nodes, a metadata controller is quite common. It's a very frequently used way of approaching this particular problem. So what happens is you have a client that wants to talk to the storage device. And so what it does is it talks to the metadata controller. And the metadata controller then tells the client where to go find the actual information, whether to write it or to read it. Any changes that the nodes do will update the metadata controller and the client can talk to the metadata controller. And this is really useful in environments like within a data center. This is what we would call a non-deterministic system. In other words, it adapts to changes inside the data center. The metadata controllers, which can be redundant, can manage any kind of node failures and you can have recovery without the replication. But the problem is that you're limited to that metadata system, right? You need it in order to store or locate the data. If you want to get really big, though, that's something of an issue. If really big systems are actually, ironically, more deterministic. And what happens in those kinds of systems is you have what's effectively a global namespace. And that global namespace is a direct mapping of where the storage is supposed to go. In that particular case, what we're looking at here is managing the writes to a specific location and the reads come from a specific location. And when data is written to this globalized storage map, it's all deterministic. It's got to go into one particular place. And the advantage to this approach is that there's no single point of failure and it has unlimited scalability, right? Because you can create that map as large as you want. The limitation, though, is that the options for storing the data is actually really restricted, And so redundancy is achieved by over-provisioning to handle any kind of outages, whether it be the node or the site. In this particular method, the namespace is deterministic and inflexible. It really can't adapt to the changing environments. And the performance degradation is cumulative. I mean, these are kind of – there are methods to improve this. But these are the different kinds of approaches if you want to get really, really, really big systems involved. Well, quick question on the deterministic systems. You're saying that – you have to over-provision. Is that a percentage? Of, like it's 10% more than what you need? Or is it linear, meaning you're always going to need double of what's there? Because it feels like if you got a certain size, then having you know, a few extra nodes when you have thousands wouldn't be a big deal. Well, that's exactly right. So if remember we were asking about what your priorities are, and if cost is not one of them, over-provision <laughs> is you know, just adding in more, more stuff and then expanding that map is doable. It will vary according to what the specific method is, right? So yeah. there's, no, there's no general rule of thumb other than what the, the manufacturer recommends. And some of these are open source and you can actually you know, look at some of these yourself and, and determine whether or not that kind of provisioning method is the way that you wish to go. Well, as with anything in technology, and I kind of hate saying this, but it depends. And in this case, it's distributed storage It's not a silver bullet in and of itself. It's not the thing that fixes storage, although it does add a lot of benefits. But you still have to look at the application suite, I.O., latency, throughput, resiliency. It seems like performance is a big one as a caveat to make sure that you can hit the the needs of the application and how they can be met. So there's a lot of benefits there. But, you know, when it comes to managing storage as, as a device versus a pool, I think distributed storage offers a lot of benefits, but it's not the silver bullet. What about you, Ethan? 
Well, the big takeaway I had was maybe that it's not about size. It's not like, oh, I have petabytes of data, therefore I must move to a distributed storage system. I mean, maybe, but that's not really where the decision point is. Following along what you were just saying, I mean, the way you make a decision about distributed storage and whether or not it's right for you is looking at your application, looking at your use case, doing some analysis, and then making an intelligent decision uh, based on all those criteria. Let's take a break to talk about this unique networking conference sponsoring our show today, FutureNet. On August 30th and 31st, 2017, at the tail end of VMworld in Las Vegas, VMware is hosting an invitation-only mini-conference on networking called FutureNet. We Packetbushers attended this last year, and we learned from listening to people who are pushing the boundaries of possible, the kind of things you can really do with a network, and the speakers who showed up there – These are not the kind of people you see speaking publicly about what they do all that often. So we were exposed to a lot of different ideas about networking that were thought-provoking and interesting and maybe even able to change our skeptical minds. So if you're interested in this, remember, again, FutureNet is invitation only, but there are still some invitations left to go out. So let's say you're a senior enterprise networking or cloud architect, you're a principal engineer, you're a CTO, you're a master practitioner of cloud technology, you've got some kind of a senior role in networking or cloud architecture. You're the sort of a person that FutureNet might want to have on board. So, and if you're not sure, I mean, go ahead, submit yourself anyway, and maybe you match and get an invitation. Now, you do need to cover your own travel and hotel to the event, and this is in Las Vegas, which can be super cheap if you hit it right, but the FutureNet conference itself is free if you qualify. And again, this is one of the best conference-style events we packet pushers have ever attended. So again, if you're a senior influencer in your organization, then you should definitely request an invitation at vmware.com slash FutureNet. One more time, that is vmware.com slash FutureNet. Okay, I mean, we've gotten pretty darn nerdy on how to lay out your storage and RAID, RAIN, and all those fun acronyms. Let's go to the meat and potatoes of the discussion for today, and that's around erasure coding. Woo-hoo. So, yeah, I love that we get a woohoo for a technology to, to write blocks to storage. Anyways, let's kick it off this way. Distributed storage systems, obviously, one of the items that you've highlighted is the need to protect against failures. How does erasure coding couple with this? Like, where's the relationship? The question of trade-offs comes up over and over and over again. And in this particular case, the trade-off really is how efficient do you need to make your storage system to guarantee that you can get your data back when you need it? Traditional systems have used replication schemes, and you'll find this in a number of different distributed storage environments. Hadoop is a really good example, and Ceph is a really good example of the original Ceph implementation, for example, used replication. I believe a lot of implementations still use replication because it's very simple. You make a couple copies, you put them in different places as far apart as possible. Bob's your uncle. There you go. So it's one original plus at least two copies. Now, the problem is that you get one storage system for the price of three. It winds up being something of an issue because you can talk about commodity material as much as you want, but if you're buying three times the amount of equipment that you need, you might want to think about whether or not the actual equipment you're buying is good enough to handle the kind of storage you want to put there. So to that end, the question really winds up being, are there better ways of being efficient in that protection? That winds up being a very good question when you start to look at how replication and storage erasure coding compete in terms of what you get for the bang for your buck. 
Okay, so again, bang for your buck being we're, we're focused on this issue of uh, replication, at least two additional copies, meaning, as you put it, one storage system for the price of three. So erasure coding helps us with that efficiency, true? Absolutely. Okay, but also gives us the same amount of reliability. So like two extra copies is super reliable. Nine nines of availability, I've seen it quoted. Does erasure coding give us that same level of reliability? Because of the fact that we're now not talking about copies, it realistically, I don't know if the nine nines of availability actually is going to give us what we're looking for, right? We, we've gotten into this mode of, oh, crap, I've got a percentage that I have to keep in mind here. Nine nines of availability is what, you know, three nanoseconds or something along those lines of loss, you know, of a, it's availability and accessibility are completely different things. But realistically, what we're looking to do is want to find out, can we get more reliable for the same amount of effort? And that's where erasure codes really come into play. So let, let's take a quick sample and I can, do a com- I can do a comparison. If I've got a replication scheme and I've got one original and two copies and I lose a copy, I can actually just copy again and then I have three copies again. Erasure coding works slightly differently. We're probably going to segue here into a little bit of the geek talk for, for a moment because understanding the way the reliability means you have to understand how erasure coding works. So I'm going to try and explain how erasure coding works. Yes. You don't have to apologize to this crowd. Go for it, Jay. Okay. So let's say for the moment, and I'm going to, I can't draw on a whiteboard here, unfortunately. So I hope that, that this explanation is going to make sense because I'm kind of making it up on the fly. Let's say you've got a file and you want to copy that file and you've got that copy into two different sections. And we're going to call that uh, in two different objects that we're going to call it. Uh, the file is made up of a red object and a blue object. And I'm going to take that red object and I'm going to take that blue object and I'm going to put that red object and blue object on a drive. All right. That makes up my file. And then I need to copy that and make a replication of it. So now I have two reds and two blues. Now, if I lose a red, I can still get a copy back. I copy a red back from the other, the other uh, location. If I lose a blue, I can just copy back over and I got my stuff back. If I lose the node or if I lose the drives that have reds, I'm SOL, right? I'm simply out of luck because I don't have the reds anymore and my blues are useless without my reds. Right? So no matter how many replications that I have, no matter how many copies I have, if I lose the wrong copies, I'm in trouble. The way erasure coding works is that I'm not going to be splitting them into the reds and the blues by themselves. I'm going to split them into the reds and the blues, and then I'm going to perform a mathematical computation called exclusive or, and I'm going to get a purple. And the purple is going to give me back a red if I have the blue, and it's going to give me back a blue if I have the red. If I do this calculation and I can actually write these two different locations, as long as I have any two, I can make it back. And it doesn't matter which two I have as long as I have two. Now, if I want to increase that so that I have red, blue, and purple, and then another calculation, and I'm running out of colors here, so let's just say <laughs> indigo, right? And basically, so now I have four different blocks distributed over four different locations. Now, remember, in my replication scheme, if I lost both A's or if I lost both B's, I was SOL, right? In this particular case, I could lose the red and blue. I can lose the red and purple. I could lose the blue and the indigo. As long as I still have the two out of the four, I'm okay. I can just reverse the process and get it back. Because it's all about that, uh, as you put it, that, that purple uh, you know, and the indigo, the blocks that are created because you're doing math. A simple one would be XOR to create that bit, you know, like a simple parity block, if you will. 
then as I was doing my my homework on erasure coding, the you know that second one could be some kind of a more complex linear equation that still allows you to do to fill in the blank with whatever's you know if there's a missing block, you still have that linear equation block. You can do math to figure out what's supposed to fill in the hole, if you will. Depending on which blocks you lose, you could be screwed. With erasure codes, because you've computed mathematically an extra block that you can use to reverse engineer a missing block, you've got extra protection. And now you've got a scenario where you can lose multiple blocks and then use math to figure out what was supposed to be there. That's right. You don't need me at all. <laughs> There's a couple of different schemes here, and I'm just curious which is typical uh, for most erasure encoding in your experience. So a real simple one would be you know, a 3-2 version of erasure coding where you've got a file split up into an A and a B block, and then you run XOR against A and B, and you've got your parity block. So you've got two actual bits of storage that take up three storage blocks to store them, the two original blocks plus the parity block. Then there's also the more complex version, which I think is what you just described, Jay. That's a 4-2. You might split up the object into four blocks, A, B, C, and D. And then you do two mathematical operations to give you two parity blocks. So you've got more blocks there, four storage blocks, and then the two parity blocks. But that gives you the ability to lose any two blocks and still be able to reconstruct what's missing. And then to compare this back to replication, we were talking about replication, typically two copies. You end up getting one storage system for the price of three. With these 3.2 or 4.2 erasure code schemes, you end up with one 5x rather than 3x. So you have you get like a 50% storage penalty to calculate these parity blocks in these kind of schemes. So let's, let's take a quick step back because I, I think um, you're, you're absolutely right. But I want, I want to try to turn this into some plain English stuff here because okay. when we start talking about the A's and B's and the four comma twos and the three comma twos, it, it could get really easy to get lost. And I want to I want to make sure that people understand what, what this actually means. Realistically, you have the actual data and then you have the calculations of the data. And that's what those numbers actually mean. You have the blocks of the data. When you go and you look at these things, you'll see, you know, K comma N, K comma P, M comma N, a, there's a whole bunch of different uh, notations for this. But effectively, what we're really trying to do is you have the number of, of pieces that you're breaking this into. That's the first number. And then the amount of data that you can actually lose. That's the second number. That's a really quick and dirty way of remembering it. So 3, comma 2 means you have three total amounts of data, and you can lose any two of them. So you'll always see the second number is going to be smaller than the first, obviously. But you know, Facebook, for example, has a 1410 version and Azure has its own method. And and so, yes, there are different ways of doing this, but at its core, you have a minimum amount of data that you can actually lose. That is a part of a subset of a total amount of data that is written. So the question is when you're talking about the 1.5, 1.4, 1.6 amplification, what that means is that the difference between the amount of data that's actually written versus the usable data is the the multiplier effect, right? So, for example, in three comma two, where you have three data total written and you only need two of them in order to replicate, you have a little bit of more overhead than just a simple one to one relationship. You have a one and a half to one relationship, and that's what that one point five x actually means. When we start to look at different coding schemes, you get different efficiencies. So, for example, in replication, 
you have a one-to-one relationship, right? You have two copies of the same thing. You can lose one, so your storage efficiency is 50%, right? You do three-way replication, you can lose two, so your storage efficiency is 33%. Compare that to, say, RAID 6, which is in erasure coding parlance, you know, 8,2, for example, you've got eight total uh, shards written and you can lose any two, your storage efficiency is 80%. This is how we calculate the efficiency of our storage mechanism. And that's where those numbers start to come from, why they become important. All right. So we've made a big deal here about using erasure coding as a way to save a lot of storage space and you know, the importance of that efficiency. And I I, we kind of made this point in the show earlier that that really does matter. But on the other hand, my brain goes, wait a minute. I thought storage was cheap. Is it, is it cost or is it also, you know, a space issue where, um, you know, where this is such a big deal? And I think that's where, where the term storage actually has a couple different meanings. There's more to storage than just the cost of the actual media. Yes, you can go to Best Buy and buy a really inexpensive, high-capacity drive and you're good to go. But when we talk about storage, we're not just talking about the cost of the media. The job of storage is not to be low cost. The job of storage is to give back that bit that we talked about before. So when we talk about storage, we're really talking about the entire ecosystem to do that one job. Not just the cost of the media upon which the data sits, right? So this means that the big win here is the efficiency of that storage space as it relates to the entire ecosystem, not just being able to reclaim it. Jay made a point a couple of times here that's really stuck out to me, and he he says that the job of storage is not to be cheap. It's to give you back your bits. It's it, You write that data, you need to get it back. And that is storage's job, to give you back that data. And that that's just a kind of a different way of thinking about storage to me that uh, really brought into focus what it's all about. You want to know what I was thinking about, Ethan? What was that? I was thinking about all these armies of math teachers out in the world smiling smugly that the answer to like fixing storage is math. <laughs> And that felt kind of good. I mean, it's it's got a little bit tongue in cheek, obviously, being a little little fun and and pokey there. But but realistically, that's all we're doing is saying instead of making three copies of something which is really dumb and easy, doesn't require calculations. It's like okay, let's calculate things. Let's do mathematical operations on things so that the loss of a portion of a thing is reversible. And so uh, I just I just had that that moment where I'm like. You know, you, you go to you go to school and like math is worthless. I'll never use it when I get into the real world, unless you're a deep level storage architect. All right, Jay. We have talked about what distributed storage is. We have talked about erasure coding and what that gives us back in terms of storage, and a bit about how it works with parity and so on. So now my brain's moving towards what happens when we lose a block and we have to do a repair. Where are the system bottlenecks? What is the performance or what are the performance concerns that we have? So a few things come into my mind, Jay, that I'm curious about. I mean, because there's math involved, is CPU a bottleneck? Because there's reading and writing to disks involved when we have to do a repair, is there a lot of disk I.O.? This is a distributed storage system with different nodes, so therefore there's a network to think about. Is that a big problem or bottleneck that we need to be concerned about. What are your thoughts? Yes. <laughs> okay. So you're telling me all of it, CPU, disk, and network, it's all a problem? 
Well, I think that if you talk to you know the CPU guys and the disk I/O guys and the data network guys, it's always a problem. It's just somebody else's problem. <laughs> um, their stuff is working fine. But realistically, the, the the question of you know, let's assume nothing is broken, and is kind of like learning physics in high school, where you assume a frictionless environment. The reality is completely different than what you're trying to do the calculations on. And in fact, I'll go ahead and give you a link to a really good. Uh, webinar series that SNEA put on for performance benchmarking, which goes into this very question in great detail. It's a fantastic presentation and explains where in the network, all the way from the CPU to the storage, do these bottlenecks actually exist. But for now, I think what we really need to, to keep in mind is that there is no such thing as a static environment, especially in storage. We talk about data at rest, but the reality is that it's not resting. When we talk about data in flight, and the, the data in flight isn't just what's going across the wire. So m- data is moving around a lot in storage systems. It's moving inside of the host. It's moving across the network. It's moving inside the storage systems. And all of these things have to be coordinated. So Flash is a really good example, right? So Flash in particular, it moves data around nonstop. You know, the way that it keeps itself healthy is to move data as part of the garbage collection process. So there's a lot of variables. There's an entire matrix of variables that need to be tracked. You know, you've got the capacity, you get the data location, you know, it's kind of like the mafia. Right? You got your capacity, you got your data location, your addresses, <laughs> your workload type. You know what I mean? Forget about it. No big problem. Break your legs. Oh, wait, no. That's a different movie. <laughs> it's, uh, do I amuse you? Anyway, <laughs> so basically, you know, when we, when we start to look at this, you, you start to realize that you got to marry that with what the applications are doing. Right, so different applications have different hotspots where the data actually exists. So there is no such thing as a nothing broken system or nothing moving system. We talk about snapshots, but that's actually kind of a misnomer given how dynamic these things actually are. Simply removing one type of bottleneck only pushes something somewhere else. You know, it's like trying to remove wrinkles, and and I've never been very good at ironing my shirt, so I don't even bother anymore because of this, but. These, these kinds of wrinkles, these bottlenecks can occur anywhere and everywhere in the system. When we start to talk about you know, the network stuff, all of these things have to be taken into consideration. This is why there's so many different ways of trying to solve this particular problem. There is no one perfect way because it's all about giving up one positive for a negative and a trade-off. Okay. Well, if nothing's perfect, then something's eventually going to break around me more than often does. So now we're in like a repair state, we'll call it. Where do the bottlenecks exist? What, I guess it's more around being concerned with if it breaks, it's best to understand how it's going to break and where the issues will lay. So I'm curious, you know, something's busted. What do I have to look for? Right. So when we start to talk about those trade-offs and, and where they're going to be breaking, you have constant needs to evaluate this according to some metric, right? And we talked a bit about those earlier. We talked about what the storage overhead was, the security of it, you know, how close it is together and, you know, what's the bandwidth it going to be. The key thing that we try to solve is what is the minimum amount of bandwidth that we need in order to fix a problem, right? We call that a, a minimum bandwidth regenerating code or minimum bandwidth requirements or MBR versus the minimum storage requirement, right? Minimum storage regenerating codes, right? That's the code that actually rebuilds the the data. Unfortunately, these two places are not the same. When we start to look at the trade-off between the bandwidth and the storage, do we want to make an exact copy 
of what the block was that we lost. That's you know what we call an exact repair. Or do we want to just do kind of a functional approach, meaning we can reconstruct a block that combined with another existing block will form that kind of code so we can still calculate the solution when we need it. Okay, so as in, to take it back to RAID, if I lose a disk and then I shove the new disk in to replace the one that went bad, I go through this repair process that rebuilds the data that goes on that disk. That would be an exact repair. A functional repair would be like, eh, we can run without that disk and we're just going to do math along the way to figure out what's supposed to be in that hole every time we try to read something that would have been in the hole. Kind of like that? Right. That's a very good way of putting it. Okay. They're not all that dissimilar, right? Because so, I mean, effectively an exact repair is a kind of a special case of the functional repair. It just takes more time and, and is a lot harder to do. But it winds up once it's back, you don't have to do any additional calculations. It sounds like the exact repair is more about satisfying the redundancy requirements versus serving up the data itself. Um, other the way around, actually. It's the functional repair is more about satisfying the re- availability requirements. And the exact repair is about getting back what you need when you need immediately. So think of it this way. Let's say you have some sort of application that needs to read a specific block. You're trying to get a block back. And is it easier to read that block or to calculate that block than read it? That wasn't a rhetorical question, by the way. I would assume it's easier to read it back and not have to do math to figure out what it's supposed to be. Exactly. So the exact repair would put you with the block that you can read directly. A functional repair would basically be a placeholder for that block so that when you do actually need it, you'll have to calculate them together. So your time to recovery is faster with an exact repair, but the cost of repair is greater on the front end. But eventually you're going to have to have the right block somewhere, right? Like you can't just have that missing piece of data and go off parity forever. Why not? Because then you're not satisfying the number of data blocks and parity blocks that the system requires? Sure you are. As long as you have enough so if you're, information. If you're normally writing like 4.2 and you are missing one, wouldn't you eventually fill that hole? Oh, because you're saying what if there's another failure scenario, Chris? You know, If you add another failure to that, at some point you blow up. Yeah, now you're running at five blocks instead of six. You're not just going to forever make up the six block in pseudo function, right? That doesn't well, that's. That's not a repair. So a rep- uh, that's not a repair at all. What a repair would do would be, cr- would be to create another block. But that re- block would therefore either be the exact original block or it would be another calculation, another parity calculation that could then recreate the block upon demand. You're still creating a new block. You're not creating a hole. You're not leaving one. So you're still cre- – but, but it's faster to create a mathematical construct than it is to actually copy over – an additional block or recalculate a block. So really it's kind of a placeholder block. Let's think of it that way. You're still building a new block, but it's just a placeholder block for the block to be recreated later. Okay. I was thinking it was just figuring out the data like in memory and giving it to you and never backfilling the missing piece of data like as a background task. No, sorry. I didn't mean that. that would be no, I thought that too. I'm glad you explained that. Yeah, that, that clears that up. Okay, Jay. So we were comparing functional with exact. Is there a time when, you know, if I'm using distributed storage, it's got an erasure coding scheme. Is there a scenario as a, you know, my application, my use case where functional is fine, I can get away with that versus I really have to have exact and I'm going to pay whatever the upfront penalty is to have an exact repair? Absolutely. I mean, the, the, this, is, this is where measuring those trade-offs because you're going to be doing the work one way or the other. And the question is when the work is going to be done and what does that work prevent others from doing? 
So for instance, let's say you've got a data analytics application. All those analytics have to work on data. They can't work on calculations of data. They have to work on actual data. So if you have an application for data analytics, you want to get that, that block back. And so it makes sense to do an exact repair for a missing block as opposed to a calculation because you're using it for something else, right? If you've got basic, uh, you know, maybe an archive solution where you don't necessarily need to have access to that data on a regular basis, uh, maybe you can get away with, you know, having a placeholder block that would eventually be a calculation. And so the question winds up being, what is the likelihood of taxing my system beyond its threshold given the strategy that I'm using? For instance, let's suppose we have a data analytics application and we are putting in functional repairs. When you need to create an analytics, you have to go through and do the calculations for every single block you're going to be doing the calculations on, which means that the analytics can't do its job until the repair gets done first. You've just established in uh, not just a latency issue between what the application requests and the actual work that gets done, but you've created a compounded effect because you have to unpack all of the dependencies before you can actually get down to business. And that includes dependencies on the network, dependencies on the CPU, dependencies in memory, dependencies on the data store, right? So if you've got a lot of data that you have to do the calculations, it may not be a good idea to have a functional repair as a general policy because you could wind up actually creating additional follow-on effects, and that would be bad. And it sounds like if you access the data frequently for some definition of frequently, then functional repairs probably going to incur too much of a penalty. Pay the penalty up front with the exact, and, and now you're done. Now you don't have to worry about it. You're, you're more or less back to normal. Right, and, and you just put your finger on the, the problem of this kind of approach of erasure coding as it currently exists, or I should say traditionally exists, which is you're embedding latency into the, into the correction problem. And that's why we usually see these with archive storage, analytics of data that already exists, uh, cold storage, stuff that is not generated on a, on a rapid basis. Right? We don't usually see this in highly transactional environments because of this very problem. This point in time, in the future, that will probably change. Our heads are kind of full of the now, the current. Certainly repairs itself, I feel like that could be a show. Uh, so I would actually like to, to hear, since you're so deep in the weeds with distributed storage design and, and that kind of jazz, where is the future of distributed storage systems? Because I, I hear a lot of it depends, there's caveats, there's ways we can change things. and So it sounds like it's still, it's still a science that has a lot of mileage left to go. Oh, there's there is no shortage. I mean, <laughs> if this if this were an iceberg, we would just be having the ice cube at the very tip here. Um, oh, wow. Oh, yeah. So there are advances going on in in compute, in FPGAs, and GPUs, and network topologies, and storage systems. All of these things have uh, profound impacts on the questions that we've been asking here. In some, in, in very good ways. So. The math is a bit beyond what we can talk about today, but it's, there's no question about the work that's being done to help solve some of these problems. For example, I just threw a whole bunch of stuff at you, and I probably your, your, head, your heads are probably spinning here. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the network stuff, right? There are elements involved in network topologies now that are designed to help mitigate traffic conundrums, right? You guys know about this much more than I do. Okay, so a scenario like well, if it's a distributed storage system, you could have blocks scattered all over the data center, but being more intelligent about that, where maybe you're trying to 
isolate some of that traffic to a rack, that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, exactly. There are ways of, of handling the algorithms for storage that allow the placement of data to be far more adaptive. And you can actually separate out and segment out the best of both worlds for deterministic and non-deterministic storage based upon those network topologies and distances. So the actual topology awareness is, goes both ways, both from the storage side and from the network side. So there's a, there's a lot of, of progress going on inside of the, the mechanisms by which the network is capitalized for doing things. There are different algorithms for, for writing data. Right? So we've been talking about the most common one, which is the Reed-Solomon approach to erasure coding. But there are others. There are many, many other ways of doing coding mechanisms that are far more useful depending upon the type of network topology and distance that we're talking about. So there are different types of mathematics that are being used to help mask off network Remember, so we have to try to figure out the, the minimum amount of bandwidth that we need. So there's new yeah. math that's going on for, for that particular question. And then because, there's the act- Reed Solomon, if you correct me if I'm wrong, that's pretty old, right? That's been around for decades, something like that? 1960, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not it's, like the new kid on the block. It just feels more popular recently. Well, we've been talking about it more recently because of the applicability of erasure coding to storage environments in general. We've kind of moved this out from behind the scenes where everything was done kind of on the back end. And now we're exposing all this across the globe and not just inside of a, of a system. So whereas we've been using it for RAID, now maybe we're using it for global namespaces. So it's been exposed to a lot more software vendors who are trying to solve this particular problem. But that's that, I mean, the math about what calculations you make. There's actually some really cool things that you're doing for regeneration codes for instance, which is the way that the math works, you can actually avoid doing writes of some types of parity blocks altogether because of the way that you group these things into a, a particular type of environment. And that goes beyond what we can talk about here. But regeneration codes are very popular in, the, uh, in, the, in this conversation space right now. And then you have the, the new media, right? Changes in um, the non-volatile memory and, and uh, storage class memory and persistent memory, for example. You know, you've probably heard of Intel's 3D crosspoint and phase change memory and, and that basic kind of advances in the actual media itself have profound impacts on what kind of applications can use this stuff. Because the bottleneck changes? In other words, you've got such a you know, wide bus, fast access to some of this newer kind of memory, you're saying? Yep. Yep. So, for example, when we start talking about the trade-offs, if you start to improve one end of a trade-off, you actually can improve your, your overall efficiency, right? So, for example, the trade-off we currently have is, you know, the storage efficiency and reliability of erasure coding comes with a cost, right? To recover or read a block, you have to read a minimum number of data blocks to recalculate the original data. And that curve of the minimum bandwidth and the minimum storage requirements gets to be something of a problem, right? So in order to have the most efficient use of bandwidth, the storage size has to be huge. So huge, as a matter of fact, that it's not practical to even consider how big the storage actually has to be in order to get the minimum amount of bandwidth efficiency coming back. So with new forms of media, we actually have better ways of doing the rights. Let me back up for just a quick second. Traditionally, in existing environments, 
whenever you write in an erasure coding system, you actually write more than the data you need. That's where you have the, the, you know, the K comma N things, right? You have a minimum amount of data, then you have the actual parity. So you have an IO amplification. Every write you have has more that you actually have to write in order to make sure that you get what you need. So your performance, your performance is going to have, uh, it's going to take a hit in the long term. Right, because of the fact that you're writing more than you actually technically need for the sake of safety. Non-volatile media, on the other hand, are not just block addressable like typical forms of, of storage. Right, so they're actually byte addressable, and because they're byte addressable, we can enable really small sized I/O. So this can create a much smaller and more efficient access size. Right, small reads and writes that are common in highly transactional storage systems, which we can't do right now in existing storage environments because the writes have to be too big to be effective for the bandwidth. So the lower latency and the lower latency variability of storage class media can make this far more tolerable. What that means is that we get a kind of a knock-on effect for that too, where we have erasure-coded reads and writes that now currently tend to waste IOPS due to the small accesses are now mitigated by the devices that are faster and have far more IOP capability. So, for example, spinning disk has about 300 IOPS, but non-volatile media can get up to a million plus IOPS, right? So we have lots of IOPS to use that we don't currently have. So, I mean, all, all the math changes at that point. It's really interesting as you've been describing these different changes, particularly the changes in the capability of new storage media, that all of a sudden the equations that have been done to calculate what's the most efficient, what makes the most sense, where's the balance and the trade-offs, you kind of throw that out the window and you got to start over again. It's like, okay, given this new set of constraints where we've got you know, this many IOPS or you know, byte addressable versus block addressable, what does that do for us and what does this look like? So it's really interesting that the, the distributed storage could look very different in, it sounds like a pretty short time because a lot of what you're talking about is coming to market sooner is already in the market in some capacity or another. Right, exactly. Both situations. We have, we've got some emerging things that are coming out in the market. We've got some stuff that's going to be coming out in the next year. It's going to change the way that we really think about doing storage at a fundamental level. We start talking about erasure coding, but realistically, what we're really talking about is the nature of the relationship between a host and its corresponding data storage. So now we can use erasure coding for protecting active and hot data and maintaining that storage efficiency and the reliability benefits by eliminating layers of abstraction, which we currently need because the media itself was too slow to do anything else. That's really what we're talking about. Wow. Okay. Okay. And that's why I love my job. Uh, all right. This is, you know, it's funny. This is one of the mean storage who you know if you're a it practitioner oh storage yeah that's the place where we keep things when we shut the systems off i remember and it's like you know boring for some people but the more i mean i've been talking to a bunch of different storage companies over the last year or so and particularly distributed storage is just really interesting because of the number of computer science problems that are brought into it and the math that's brought into it and the rapid changes in technology that keep changing the equations it's really a truly interesting topic so jay now in our notes here you've got a bunch of different uh, resources that uh, people can consume if they want to find out more about erasure coding, large-scale distributed storage. Would you just run down those real quick as we close out the show? Absolutely. I think that depending upon where people are in the storage world, whether they consider themselves to be beginners or more intermediate or more advanced, 
there's a number of places to look. I think for the basics, I've been the developer of a webinar series that SNEA has put on. It's vendor neutral called Everything You Wanted to Know About Storage But We're Too Proud to Ask. And we've got six or seven of these already out. And the first one that I would recommend, which covers erasure coding, is part chartreuse. They're named by their colors because they, you can watch them in any order. You don't, there are no dependencies for these except for the first one, which is the chartreuse one. I also will recommend highly the SNEA storage performance benchmarking seminars. There's like four or five of those. And they go into systems under test. They go into the basics of where these hotspots actually are, where the bottlenecks are. It goes into block, file, and object approaches. It's really very useful for people who want to know that particular question as to you know, where the problems actually lie. And then if you want to go into the deep dives into erasure codes, there are a number of presentations that have been done at the Storage Developer Conference for modern erasure codes and distributed storage systems. And for those who are more advanced, there are some links that I will be providing you for network codes and using network coding in addition to erasure coding. And we didn't really get too much into that. We just briefly touched on it at the very end. But it talks about that advanced mathematics, that it talks about the advanced networking capabilities to solve the problem of how little do we need in order to maintain our reliability and can we squeeze that down a little bit further. And all those links will be in the show notes at packetpushers.net. Just look for data knots. This is episode 93. And if you search for that on packetpushers.net, the show will come up. All those links will be there for you. And uh, Jay, I know you're a little bit social. You're on Twitter at uh, Dr. Jay Metz, D-R, the letter J, M-E-T-Z. And then uh, you got your personal blog that I follow, Jay, some entertaining and thought-provoking stuff there at jmetz.com. And if you heard Jay say SNIA, that is the Storage Networking Industry Association, S-N-I-A, SNIA. I almost said bless you when you said that. Yeah. (laughs) And that is going to wrap it up for today's edition of the Data Knots Podcast. You can reach Ethan. That would be me at EC Banks on Twitter. And my blog is packetpushers.net. I also have a personal blog, ethancbanks.com. You can find Chris at Chris Wall on Twitter, and his blog is wallnetwork.com. For more of our Data Nuts shows about infrastructure engineering, nosedive down the rabbit hole that is packetpushers.net. You will find the Data Nuts talking about containers and conferences, certifications, PowerShell, moving to cloud, full-stack engineering, storage architecture like today, and so much more. And until then, may your server lights blink, your erasure codes calculate, and your cables be cleanly managed. I will kick it off here. Three, two. And starting again. <laughs> uh, okay, get the giggles out here.